G'day legends, just a quick note before we get into this episode. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, I reckon you'll love my vlog over on YouTube, Skulls Weekly. After almost 300 episodes of my daily vlog, Skulls Stories, we wanted to continue to make it interesting and add value to you guys as cricket lovers and cricketers, cricket coaches, and so we've changed it up. We're making it a much higher quality production. We're trying to give as much value as we can, and we've made it a weekly vlog, Skulls Weekly. We've had some excellent feedback so far. So guys, head over to YouTube, search Cricket Mentoring. Please subscribe, like, share, comment, etc. And check out my new vlog, Skulls Weekly. Welcome to the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I'm Tom Scolay, or Skulls as I get called, and this podcast has been designed for cricketers and cricket lovers who want to learn and improve themselves. In this podcast, we interview past, current and future cricket stars to find out more about their journey and what makes them successful, while also sharing some audio from ourselves at Cricket Mentoring. Our goal is to help you become your best on and off the field, so I hope you enjoy this podcast and get something valuable out of it. G'day legends, today's episode is with someone who's been a pioneer for women's cricket throughout her career. Kate Cross is an international cricketer who is currently in Australia as part of the England squad for the Women's World Cup. You'll hear throughout this episode how open and honest she was about her life and career in cricket. While she's had a career to be proud of, she's also had her fair share of challenges and hardships which culminated in her being too scared to see her teammates during a training camp in the UK. It led to her stepping away from the game for a break and to work through her mental battles, which have since been very well documented. She says that now she understands that managing her mental health is an ongoing process, but since then she's been able to work her way back into the England team and is enjoying her cricket again. Crossy shared so many wonderful stories, from learning to play cricket in the backyard with her brother to the difficulties that come with being a professional sports person and how it can cause you to stop enjoying the game you love. This is an incredibly powerful episode, and I thank Crossy for being so open and honest with us. Now let's get into it. G'day legends, and welcome to this episode of the Cricket Mentoring Podcast. I have a superstar international cricketer with me, Kate Cross. Thanks for joining me. Um, now guys, those of you that who may not know too much about Kate's career, she's played three test matches, 26 one-day internationals. 13-2020 internationals, um, and she's played a lot of uh, Big Bash and various formats around the world, so welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you enjoying your time in Australia? Uh, yeah, it's hard to be disgruntled over here. It's, um, it's like you said earlier, it's probably my second home, so it's nice to be here, especially when there's storms going on and floods going on in England. It's it's nice to be here. Yeah, and I was just talking about she's just come off the beach to give us <laughs> her story, so thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, no um, problem. Now, we'll take you back to where it all began. You're born in Manchester. How did you get into cricket? What inspired you to get into cricket? Um, I think, like a lot of my generation of female cricketers, I had a male influence in the family. So I've got an older brother, dad, uncle, who all played cricket. They played at what is, it's not my local cricket club, but it's the cricket club that I grew up at, which is Hayward in the central, it was the central Lancashire League, it's all changed now. Um, But yeah, I was just a little kid, um, youngest in the family, who got forced to bowl at my brother in the back garden. Um, I always joke that my older brother... He's a bowl, a, a, an opening batter. My sister's a wicket keeper, and I was a bowler, so you know how it so went in the garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was Bobby, his older brother, but he just kind of enforced that in the back garden, um, which is probably where I learned how to play it. But I just remember it always being on telly. 
Um, in the summers back in England, I was just always down at the cricket club. Um, so I think that's obviously a big influence on you as a kid. Yeah. So did, did Bobby bowl at all? I know you. No, were no. Yeah, <laughs> no. I can imagine looking at your career, your yeah. a bowler. He must be just a batter, and you all had your roles in the backyard. Yeah. As soon as you got him out, then that was cricket over. We had to go and play something else, go inside or play tennis or whatever it was. But um, yeah, as soon as you got him out, that was it. You didn't get a chance to bat. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing in Australia. Everyone sort of learns the game in the backyard. It's not so common in the UK, but. You must have had a, a good little sort of setup there in your backyard. Yeah, very lucky. Um, my dad had a, a profession in, as a footballer, a soccer player over here. Um, so, yeah, everyone always says to me, like, why do you not play football? But I'm actually dreadful with my feet. I'm Obviously, that hand-eye coordination is a lot better. Did he try and get you into football? Uh, he never pushed me, uh, any of us. I've got a sister, an older sister, older brother, like I said, but he never pushed any of us into sport. It was just kind of what we enjoyed. But I think having the influence of parents who enjoy sport and... Um, take you to practices and things like that I think that's where it came from and having two older siblings who are heavily into sport as well that Mm. always helped Just want to pause for a minute there guys to let you know about our email newsletter if you haven't subscribed to our email newsletter you're missing out on loads of value to help you both on and off the field every Monday I send out a Monday motivation email where I share my favourite article video podcast of the week plus a little bit about what I'm up to and what I'm learning. I'm always trying to give value and help you guys become your best. So head over to cricketmentoring.com forward slash newsletter dash subscription and sign up now so you can get value into your inbox every week. Now let's get back into this episode. So as a 13-year-old, what did your cricket look like? Were you playing in the boys' competition, playing with the older women? How did a 13-year-old... Um, have a look. <laughs> that feels a really long time ago now. Um, I never played women's cricket when I was a youngster because I think the closest women's team that we had was like an hour away, an hour drive away. So it's a lot to ask your parents to take you to home games when they're an hour away. Um, so I always played men's cricket. So Haywood, the club I talked about earlier, they had an under 11s team and my uncle was the coach, which I think made it a little bit easier for me to go down because obviously I had a familiar face. Um, but honestly, it was the best thing that I ever did because because I could do it. I was naturally I had my brother always said that I had naturally had a good bowling action. So then when I went down to the under 11s, I wasn't learning a new skill. So just to sort of cut you off there, where do you think you learned your bowling action? Was it watching cricket on TV, or was it watching someone else do it? Or I honestly don't remember. I, my brother tells a story about when he uh, my dad came home from work one day and he said, "Oh, Kate can bowl. She's just picked up the action." So I think maybe a combination of seeing it on TV, my brother helping me. Um, but I also just think it's like a product of what you do most days. And if you're in the back garden yeah. bowling and bowling at your brother, then you do pick it up. Um, but like I said, I think that then made it easier when I went into a proper team. Um, and I, it's hard at that age when you're an under 11 because you do want to give everyone an opportunity. But my uncle always said that he picked me on merit, which was a big thing for me. And it became a big thing through my childhood because I didn't want to just play to make numbers up I didn't want to play because I was a girl um, I always wanted to make sure that I was good enough to be in the team mm, and how did you feel playing with I suppose you were the only girl how did you feel playing with uh, with, boys, with boys were they welcoming were they um, discouraging or how was it back then my team were brilliant and I've made lifelong friends from that under 11s team um, I, I think when you when you are the only girl in a team and I was one of the only girls in the league as well so it, it wasn't like every team had a girl um, you're always going to get people when you turn up to games going, oh, God, they're scraping the barrel or, you know, they've not got enough to 
to make a team so a girl's playing. And how did that make you feel? Did you, knowing that, did it put extra pressure on you? Did it make you feel like you're going to prove everyone wrong? Or? Yeah, I think subconsciously I was I was like, I'm going, to, I'm going to prove people wrong here. But I think when you're that age, you know, I was just playing a sport that I loved and I was getting an opportunity to play it com- competitively. So um, I think looking back, I was very much, I'm going to prove them wrong. But I think at the time I was just enjoying, you know, I didn't even know what the journey would be at that point, but I was just enjoying it. And um, I... I am very competitive naturally. I think that, again, comes from being the youngest of three. So um, I loved it. And I, I, I then because going back to that being picked on merit thing and feeling like I was good enough to be there, it then made it a little bit sweeter when you did have success mm. because you did prove a lot of people wrong. Give a few boys send-offs that didn't... <laughs> I never gave people send-offs <laughs> because I knew that I would have to bat and I knew that I always struggled against uh, boys' pace because naturally it's just a lot quicker. But that kind of went into when I started playing senior cricket at, at Hayward as well. I, I remember turning up to a third team match and my mum was actually my mum told me this story after the game I didn't know about it but she was sat in the crowd and, and some guy was like oh god the girl's coming on now like that's it we're going to score 300 and I took four for like, yeah. in my spell so yeah. it just shut a lot of people up but I think like my mum was then sat there quite smug thinking yeah, oh yeah, yeah she's proving nice. them wrong yeah it'd be nice I reckon there'd be some guys go, oh, exactly they're scraping the barrel and then you nick them off and you just yeah. like <laughs> Um, so I read that you're the first woman to play in the Central Lancashire League and you took three for 19 on debut and later in that season you took eight for 47. So <laughs> yeah. How old were you when that happened? Uh, I think I was in my early tw- early 20s, maybe 23. Yeah. Um, it was it was quite ironic because my brother was first team captain at Hayward for, I think he had a 10-year stint as first team captain and he never picked me. Right. So I was in the twos or the threes. And then he wasn't captain and I suddenly got a go, but I think that was you know his... Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? It's your family, it's your little sister, the girl. There's a Was lot. he trying to protect you or did he not think you were good enough? Or I think it would just come back to him. If I wasn't good enough and I I don't know, if I lost those games, then it, he'd probably get the questions of, oh, are you picking her because she's your sister? Um, but then I think, if I remember rightly, that was a season that I hadn't, I wasn't playing much international cricket. Um and I'm sure we'll go into this later, but our county season isn't very long either. So you, you've got to get your cricket. Well, for me, it was playing men's cricket. Um, so it was just for me, it was just an opportunity to go out and bowl my overs rather mm. than having to bowl them in the nets on my own. Um, and then I think through the enjoyment of you know being able to represent the first team, which even though I'd made my international debut at that point, it was still a really big deal for me to play first team cricket. Yeah, a bit. Because I'd played thirds and seconds and I wanted to and kind of... And you played all junior cricket yeah, as well. Yeah, and yeah, growing up there, I think everyone naturally, your ambition is to play at the highest highest of that level. So, um, yeah, it was. A, I was actually really, really nervous when I made that debut. Yeah. But I'm probably more nervous than my international debut because there was probably a few more eyes on me. And I, I've found that um, in the cricket I've played and the people I've played, often... When you're in an intimate setting with everyone you know, it's almost ner- more nerve-wracking than being in a packed stadium and yeah. you don't know who's where and what's going on. Yeah, and I think because I was the girl that grew up at Hayward, um, again, there wasn't many in the league, and if, if there was, they kind of tailed off towards the under-18s age groups. Um, everyone knew who I was, not in an arrogant way, but mm. everyone knew that Hayward had a girl that played for them. So I think, and you obviously stand out when you get there and you've got your ponytail sticking out of your, of your hat. So, um, yeah, I've kind of probably put a bit more pressure on myself, but felt that externally there was a bit more pressure on that debut. I, I actually broke my finger. Um, we'd played a warm-up match at the start of the season and then I got this return catch and I like broke my finger up here. 
And I was like, I can't go off because my nail was bleeding. I was like, I can't go off because it's going to look like I've come off for a broken nail yeah, and I can't be the girl yeah, that does yeah. that. So I played and then like played the next three games with this broken finger and uh-huh. I was like, I'm just going to have to get through it. And like, That is tough. Yeah, but I just, I didn't want to give people anything to talk about well, that would be kind of stereotypical. Yeah, yeah, I got one on the end of the finger last week. And I was bleeding <laughs> and I had to stop bowling and go off a bit. So I was not as tough as you. I didn't even break it. <laughs> Now, winding it back, in 2006, you became the first female cricketer accepted into the Lancashire Academy. Yep. So you had done a lot of things for the first time in women's cricket in Lancashire. What was that like and how did that come about? Again, I think at the time you kind of like in your own little bubble and I was just a kid playing cricket and loving it and getting these opportunities that girls hadn't had before. So now I can see how much like... Again, I think it's our generation, but we're kind of like trailblazers of the of this generation of women's cricket because there's a lot of firsts that we've done. And in a, in a way, you're almost guinea pigs for that as well because no one knows how you're going to go or how the girls are going to go in in the male side of the sport. Um, but I remember there was loads of media attention around it and I was just a 15-year-old who was picking the GCSEs at the time and you know just enjoying a sport and like I said, getting these opportunities. And it just kind of hit, I think that's when it then hit me that I could probably go a little bit further with my cricket. Um, when you say a little bit further, what what was the pinnacle? What was the goal? Was was it like you obviously had women before you playing for England and was that something that you thought that could be me, that could be a career, that could be a life? Or were you sort of thinking, I want to play cricket but I still need to, there's no money in it yet? Um, well, Obviously, I never dreamt that I'd have a career in cricket because that wasn't an option when I was a kid and I was I was going through school and planned on going to uni and, and getting a job. But if I'm completely honest, I didn't know there was an English women's cricket team at that point. I knew that girls played cricket, but it wasn't it wasn't on the telly. Um, I remember I actually played a county game for Lancashire when I was, I think I was 13 or 14. We were playing against Kent and I got a wicket. I got someone out first ball and I was like celebrated like I would and all the team like rushed round me like really celebrating. I was like, who was that? I don't know who it was. And it was Charlotte Edwards and she was obviously captain of England at the time. I didn't have a clue. I was mm. just like, I, I think it just goes back to just being a kid who enjoyed sport mm. and was kind of like riding the wave of whatever opportunity did come up. Um, but I think the pinnacle was getting accepted into the academy because that's when the media attention was on me and you know I'm a 15 year old reading those newspaper articles as well saying I'm going to play for England and I think that was then when I started putting a bit more expectation on myself and on cricket um but I I think I just wanted to see how far I could go with it if I was good enough to play for England then brilliant but if not then you know it'd been again it was just I'm just loving what I was doing I was Mm. just enjoying myself Mm. and like I think just seeing how I could go with it or or what opportunity it could bring for me this is might be a tricky one to answer on the spot but do you still love it as much as you did then, do you think? I don't think so, because there's a lot more pressure on it now. And expectation is a good thing, but when you're being paid to do something, those expectation levels obviously get higher. Mm. Um, I think the media scrutiny is great, and don't get me wrong, it's an unbelievable profession to be in. And I am still that kid playing a sport that I love, but the pressure that you put on it, like the mind games that you play with yourself... Mm. I'm, I'm sure we will go into mm. that mm. a lot later, but that was that was a bit of my downfall. Mm. Um, but I, I think I almost get frustrated with myself because I want to be that kid that just goes and enjoys it. But I think that when you do play um, sport professionally, I do think there are barriers that stop that. Mm. And I think it's the, when you're probably playing at your best, you're probably back to that kid. You're not thinking too much. You're just playing 
not just you, but everyone. I think Absolutely you're just playing everyone. for enjoyment. And that's the advice that everyone gives me and the advice that I give to everyone is just go and enjoy yourself. It. Yeah, but it's, it is finding a way of doing that. And I think the people that have probably had setbacks or maybe injuries that have kept them out of the game, they're the people that seem to be able to do that a little bit better. Mm, a bit more perspective maybe yeah. of how fortunate they are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, um, you've mentioned your, your father and your, your, how much of an impact did your parents play in your, your upbringing and ha- other mentors, how much of an impact, you, you, maybe your older brother and sister, how much of an impact have they had in your life? Yeah, my family's my biggest impact because they have supported me through absolutely everything that I've done. And I think being the baby of the family, I probably get <laughs> mollycoddled a little bit more than, than Bobby and Jenny did. But... Um, yeah, my dad was a huge influence. I think he played professional sports, so offered me advice from the exact perspective that I needed. Um, but then you've got, you know, they just supported me in the way that they trekked up and down the country with me. They travelled. We had a trip to South Africa as a, a Lancashire under-17s team, and, you know, they supported me through that, And um, as parents do. But, like I said, they never pushed me into anything. Um the conversations got a bit more difficult when I th- I wasn't enjoying it as much because of all the pressure I was putting on myself and I was trying to get through uni and it was you know I just wasn't managing my time very well um and that was when it, I actually saw a bit of a difference with my parents so my dad had always been kind of the guy that I'd go to about advice in sport and my mum had kind of been the emotional support and then when I had this um it was I think it was my third year of uni I just said I'm not enjoying it anymore I think I'm going to quit and it was my mum that said, oh, you can't do that. You can't give everything up. You know, you've worked so hard for this. And my dad on the flip side was saying, if you don't enjoy it, don't do it. It's not worth it. You know, we've all been there. We all, mm. you know, if you're not enjoying it, you're just not going to get the most out of it. Um, but other than that, I'd say my brother, he's a big, big influence as well. He pretty much taught me how to play. So I always will be grateful to him. Um, John Stanworth who was the academy director at the time that he got me into the academy he came and watched me bowl I think we had a a women's training session and he came down and had a look at some of the girls and that was when he then decided to put me on the academy and he got a lot of stick for it because the old traditionalists at the club had said that I'd taken the place of a male player and that wasn't the case because he could have if he'd wanted 20 lads on the academy or 10 lads on the academy he could have done it how he saw fit but um, that was what all the media interest was around, you know, saying that I'd t- effectively taken the place of a future Lancashire or England player. And that's what you became, so well yeah. done to John and <laughs> yeah. getting you in there. But, well, I think he was such a big influence because, like I said, that was kind of the pivotal moment where I thought, right, if I get my head down now and, and work hard, I might be able to play for England. Mm. Um, and again, like you read the, the newspaper article saying that you should play for England, so... I think that was a, a big moment because he just he did something that no one had ever done and get like took a chance on me mm. and and ultimately that was what made me kind of sit up and realise that I could go a little bit further with it. Amazing. So moving forward, you made your ODR debut at 22, um, where you got Player of the Match, tore apart the West Indies um, top order. Tell us about that in a minute. But going from being 15 and in the Lancashire Academy to 22, how did that period look and what did you have to do? to get in that England team? There's a lot of... Uh, it's that classic, like, you think that the road to success is like that, isn't it? But if you actually look at it, it's it was mine was all over the shop. Um, I had a lot of time in the England Academy, which is the next step up from... At the time, it was the next step up from county cricket. Um, and I think I had a stat where I was the most capped Academy player, which is something that you probably don't want because yeah. you want to try and get, get the yeah, yeah you want to get into the yeah, into the, the England team um, and I just couldn't seem to to break through um, and I actually got dropped from the academy in my final year of university which 
in hindsight was a blessing in disguise because it gave me a chance to just concentrate on uni and get my degree. Um, but that was the first time that, ironically, it's, it was Lisa Kitely, who's now our head coach, but she was the academy head coach at the time. She rang me and she said, you, you know, you've just not been taking wickets, you've not been performing for us, you know, we can't, we can't let you in this winter. Um, and that was the first time someone told me that I wasn't good enough. And that was... Is that a big blow? Oh, it's shattering, yeah. Because a lot of... I think a lot of professional sports people, if they're very honest with themselves, always believe that they're not good enough. And for someone to say it to you, it's obviously quite... Well, Damaging. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, but like I said, I think if I hadn't had that setback, and there was loads of other setbacks that I've had, but I think they're the kind of things that... I was, I was kind of deliberating with myself at the time was I enjoying it did I want to carry on doing this it's such hard work and then someone made a decision for me and on the back of that I then had my best season with Lancashire started taking wickets again was enjoying my cricket so I think sometimes taking that step away can almost like drive you forward a little bit because you get the opportunity to remember why you played the game and I think sometimes what I've heard from other players is when they get too focused on the step above they stop enjoying where they're at. When they get their focus taken away from the step above, they can actually just play in with a bit of freedom and enjoyment again. Yeah, and that's why I'm not surprised that when I made my debuts, I probably played some of my best cricket because I did what got me to that point. Um, and I think when you then, in the England setup, you think, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Whereas actually, if you go back to what got you there in the first place, like why, why are you a successful bowler at county level cricket? Mm. You take wickets, right, how do you take your wickets? This is how you do it. So I think sometimes you complicate it yourself because you're trying to be a better version of... Mm. You, like, don't get me wrong, I think you should always strive to improve, mm. but... You've got to stay with what's worked. Yeah, exactly. So, so do you have a blueprint of your, your success? Do you have a blueprint of what you need to go back to from like your best days, what it looks like? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll t- probably talk about this a lot, but for me, it's enjoyment. And like you, that journey that I had from probably 13 to 17, that was when I was probably everything was going my way and I was the first at a lot of things um like that was just when I was enjoying my cricket the most and not that I didn't care if I made mistakes but you know I just almost yeah um whereas then the more I started overthinking everything was when I almost made myself a worse player because of that and so now I always say to myself if I get to play again for England if I ever get selected just enjoy it because it could be a last game um I had a I had a little bit of a break between 2016 and 2018, and I genuinely thought I wasn't going to play for England again. And then when I did get to play again, I just said to myself, "It doesn't matter. Just go and enjoy it. All your family are here. They didn't think you'd be here again. So mm. just give it your, give it your best go." Let's take a quick break from the podcast for a minute to thank our sponsors, Grove Cricket. Grove is the best gear in the business, and we absolutely love using it. Guys, if you're interested in some Grove Cricket gear, then send us a message on Instagram. Let us know what you're after and we can help you become a user of Grove. And in doing so, you can support what we're doing here at Cricket Mentoring. It is awesome gear and I'm sure you'll love it as much as we do. Now let's get back to this episode. So what did you do in that time you weren't playing? Did you have to do a lot of soul searching? Did you go and work your absolute backside off? Did you just take a, a genuine break, didn't do anything in cricket for a little while? What did that time look like? Um, so the build-up to that was a probably a full year of um, kind of like repressing a lot of anxiety, which then led to a lot of low mood, a lot of like depression symptoms. So I was really struggling with my mental health. All based around cricket? All based um, around performance and, and the mostly, 
Yeah, mostly cricket because um, we turned professional at this point and um, I really struggled with that time because my hobby and that love for the game that I'd had for a kid became my job and I was getting paid for it and you know, if you're not getting the results then you're not good enough, that kind of, you, you build stories up in your head don't you and you make it so much, you catastrophize everything. Um, but I think then when it all kind of got to the point, I didn't know any of this was going on. I knew that I was struggling with low mood and lack of motivation, which is obviously a shambles when you're a professional a sports person because you've got to be out being fit, and I was really struggling with that side of it. Um, but I think that kind of all built up, and I just exploded, basically. Um, and that was when I had to get away from everyone. I couldn't even sit in the same room as the England girls. I, I went down to a training camp that we had at Loughborough and I couldn't, I, I hid in the physio room. I couldn't let anyone see me. I spoke to Mark Robinson, who was our coach at the time, and just said, I can't be here. I need to go, I need to get away. And this was, um, it was the winter before the 2017 World Cup. And I knew that if I had this conversation with him, then I was potentially jeopardising my spot in the 50-over World Cup team. But you had to get that balance of, you know what's what's actually more important is cricket more important or your health and everything was just um was just suffering because of cricket basically um so he was brilliant he said to me go away go on holiday get away for a couple of weeks i'm not going to set you for this west indies trip that they had um but you know we'll reassess when you come back but we want to look after you basically um and then in that two years i did a lot of work with our psych who's the england psych um He's called Mike, ironically. Mike the Psych. Um, Mike Rotherham? Yeah. I've, he's been on this podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so he did... He. It's funny because he sat down and told me loads of things about myself that I just had no idea about. And I was almost like, well, I, I think you're talking about someone else because, you know, I've never struggled with my childhood. And he actually, like, we went right back and he, he talked about all the expectation that I'd been under from probably 13 you know, having a father who was a professional sports person, having a brother who was contracted with Lancashire cricket as well. My sister was a Super League netballer. So what was I going to do? You know, how am I going to get the attention? And I was like, well, I don't, I genuinely don't think that that's affected me. And he said, well, it might not have done, but subconsciously there'll be elements of that that have kind of caused a little bit of this anxiety now and this expectation that you put on yourself. And um, so I had to do a lot of, I had some horrendous sessions with him where I had to sit with my mum and dad and like talk about how, when they came to watch me, I felt like I was letting them down if I didn't do well and things like that. Um, so it's pretty horrendous, but they're the conversations that I had to have with myself mm. to then allow myself to, first of all, start start getting better um, and then start enjoying the game again. Well, now that you know what you know, is there anything you could manage in yourself? Obviously, those conversations and that therapy sort of thing with Mike had a big impact. But is there anything you know now that you could look, say, advise yourself as a younger person to sort of either see a trigger and act on it or to do something differently to not get to that point and put so much pressure on yourself? I think a big thing, part of my downfall was that I didn't have that hobby anymore because cricket was my always my release. If netball wasn't going well or school wasn't going well, I went down to the cricket club. Um, and so I didn't, even now, I, like, I wouldn't say I've got a hobby I haven't got anything that kind of takes my mind away from cricket. Um, so I think like, knowing your outlets and... For, uh, God, there's loads I could go into with this, but like, my father also came from a sporting generation was where like you were fine. I like, remember those times where 
like I, I, if you rolled your ankle or did something, Dad was like, "Get some ice on it. You'll be fine." Tough enough. Yeah, there's, there was not that he's he wasn't like an, an emotionally attached father or anything like that because he he wasn't. He's brilliant, but his That's habits, yeah, his habits that he had. Like he, this is a guy who played a game of football a week after he broke his skull because he just thought he had mild concussion. Wouldn't happen this day. No, exactly. So I think a lot of things have changed now and how open people are about talking. And my struggles that I had actually forced him to open up a little bit more. And it was, I, I almost like wondered what kind of a player he would have been if he'd had this support that I had when he was a professional player. Mm. So um, I've lost my train of thought as to why I've got onto that now. But... Um, so, so now do you have to continue to manage your mental health? Are you doing daily or weekly or monthly practices, things, journaling, speaking to the psych? How do you manage your mental health now on a day-to-day basis? I don't do anything necessarily where I think, right, this is for my mental health, but I'm just a lot more aware of myself and I'm a massive extroverted person and I'm, um, you know, I'm the one in the dressing room that's messing about and playing pranks and trying to be the energy of the group and that takes its toll on me. So I realise that when I'm getting a bit tired and a bit frustrated and a bit, you know, if I'm arguing with people a little bit too much, then I need a bit more of my personal space mm. and that's difficult when you're on tour for two months. Mm. But um, I think I'm better at knowing how to recharge my own batteries. Mm. Um, what do you do? That leads into a question I've got for later on. What do you do to switch off? What do you do to get away from the game? Um, I think that is, again, it's difficult when you're on tour because you're here for a reason. Um, And even your rest days aren't really rest days because you're constantly thinking, I've got training tomorrow, there's a game in two days. Um, But a big one for me is, like, family and friends. Like, just having conversations that are nothing to do with cricket or just something as little as going, for me, like, going out walking is a big one now. Um... I never used to do things like that. When I was really struggling, I used to meditate every day. Uh, I used Headspace. Um, and I think I got on a roll of like 70 days in a row doing that. And that really helped me because that was just 10 minutes of the day that was me out of my own head. And, and they were guided meditations? Yeah, guided meditations. Was that yeah, they were, uh, It's funny, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known at the time how much they were helping me. But then when I look back over those 70 days, that was when I'd, like my mood had started lifting. And I never had medication or anything like that. So... There was a direct result. Yeah. um, And I think with that, just on that, people don't realise the power of the mental skills. And they don't happen overnight, but over time you start to... They're not tangible, so it's really hard to to sort of see it. And the other thing I think that we've got better as a squad about... I think this is why I started going back to my dad and his the support he had as a um, as a player, but just talking to people, you know, just saying oh, I'm frustrated with this or I'm starting to feel like this. Like you don't understand the power of just saying words to people can have because then someone they'll either empathise or sympathise with you and or they'll go, well, you know, I think you've blown that out of proportion or whatever it might be. But I think just the power of talking is so Getting underused. It off your chest. Yeah. And is that that's obviously an environment that's been created in your group? Yeah, I think that's really important, but I don't think it necessarily even has to be your, your teammates. I think having that outlet, it might be, I don't know, the guy that you get coffee with down the road or your mum or whoever it is, but just someone who knows you inside out, lets you rant if you need to. Also, if you're having a sad day, that you know that's okay. You can be tired. You can have mentally rough days, but... I think just accepting, for me, I've always just accepted now that mental health will be a big part of my life, and it's just how I manage it. Managing that, yeah. And we had a a mental health sort of guy, Mark Boynes from Opening Up Cricket, um, on our podcast, and he spoke about mental health being sort of on a continuum, and some days you have a bad day, and some days you have a good day, and it's just sort of 
understanding that and not judging yourself for that and sort of trying to then manage manage that yeah, as you say absolutely you you spoke about how tough it was watching the, the women the uh, ladies win the world cup in 2017 how how did you deal with all that and the, the time after that as well yeah that was a really frustrating time because i felt like i was probably back to my best cricket wise and also felt mentally good so i was you know, frustrated that wasn't i hadn't made the squad i was quite close to getting in the squad um but it was that day at Lords was just horrendous because you were just battling with yourself mentally because you knew that if we were, we won and it was brilliant that we'd sold Lords out and it was going to be a you know massive day in women's cricket's history. But then I was sat up in the stands with the families drinking champagne and not, I had to pretend that yeah and I had to pretend that everything was okay and I was sat there thinking I really don't want them to win mm. and so my best I'll. Al Hartley was playing in that game. I was like, I really don't want them to win. And then, I, as a character, I was thinking, what a horrible person you are that you don't want your friends to have success. Mm. And then, so you go back to, right, well, if they win, think of the bigger picture. You know, it's going to help women's cricket. It's going to propel us forward. You know, we've got a bit more of a leg to stand on now when we're talking about equal pay or whatever it might be if we win this game. And it was just that constant all day was that I wasn't going to go. Then my mum made me go. And it was just this constant day back and forth. Mm. And it was just emotionally so draining. Mm. As, as sports people, we have, and human beings, but sports people, it's a, I suppose, amplify. We have the two voices. We have the positive and the negative. And on that day, it sounds like you were wrestling with the two. How have you managed that over your career? You, you were at the top of your mark and you've got a negative voice on your shoulder saying, you can't do it, don't miss, you're going to get hit. But, and then you've got the positive saying, no, nah, come on, you've got this, you're in control, you can do this. I think it's just knowing that if you listen to that negative voice, you're probably going to fail anyway. So this was something in that two years that I took out. We did a lot of work on um, the positive talk that you have about yourself. And like I said, no, I, I don't think many professional sports people will sit there and go I'm good enough to be here because you're always doubt, you'll always doubt yourself but I learned that I was so afraid of making mistakes and so scared of failing that I didn't put myself in a position to fail so then I was not learning anything you, know, you I wasn't, weren't able to fully succeed if you weren't willing to fail exactly so I wasn't I wasn't even developing myself because I didn't I don't want to embarrass myself by learning a I don't know a back of the hand slow ball and it going in the side net because people then might think I'm not good enough to be here. So why did did Mike and did you guys uncover where that fear of failure came from? Was it because you wanted to impress your family, you wanted to fit in so much or why, like failure is obviously a part of sport but some people are so scared of it like you say and do you know where that came from? I think it came from probably that period I had through my teenage years where I was the successful female cricketer in Lancashire like you said and I think that pressure had built up and like when Mike expressed that to me, I was like, "No, I'm just I'm just a kid playing cricket." But then there's that expectation that comes That's with who you were, yeah. Um, and if if the first girl that had been accepted into the academy hadn't then gone on to play for England, then someone had failed along the way, and I wasn't good enough. So I think it I think it was this almost not a need to please people, but a need to kind of stand out and, and justify everything that you thought you were at that point. Yeah. In time. yeah, and when you play for Lancashire, like I was the opening bowler who took the wickets but then you get into the England team and suddenly you're not the best player anymore and it's then trying to how do you get yourself seen in that environment because you know if you're just a young kid who's come in and made the debut then it, like I think you just battle with yourself again I think it all it all does come from the mental talk that you have with yourself but going back to what you said about the negative and the positive and that battle I think if you choose to listen to the negative side you're just never going to succeed 
because it does take a lot to put yourself out there and like not be scared to fail in front of people but I always just think you I have this like saying that I say to myself now about like regrets like will you regret doing something or will you not regret doing it mm. and you always will probably regret not doing it mm. so even if, let's put it in cricket context if you think you're going to bowl that back of the hand slow ball in a pressure situation where they need four runs to win if you get it wrong and they win well at least you've tried and at least you've put yourself out there to mm. you know potentially be a match winner so I think if you flip that on its head it can be a really like powerful mm. message that you give to yourself. Mm. Something that I've noticed and heard is the most dying people, they're the biggest common thing is regret. Yeah. And for me, I, I really try and live my life to so that I don't have any regrets. I'd rather fail trying than wish or wonder what if. So I think that that's awesome. Moving on to your test debut, and obviously there's not a whole lot of women's test cricket, unfortunately. Um that was obviously a pretty special time. You won the test, you took wickets. How was that for you? Yeah, I don't even think I was meant to be in that team. Um, I'd got selected because of the West Indies tour where I'd made my one-day and T20 debut and done quite well there. I think I kind of got swept up into the Ashes team. Um, and it was only we played a two-day warm-up game and I'd bowled 13 overs in the day and I think I was going at twos or threes. Didn't take a wicket, but just bowled the ball on the same spot for 13 overs and I think that's genuinely what got me selected they went with the extra seamer we were obviously playing at Wacker which helped um, and I think genuinely to this day I think the reason we went well we went with three seamers I think that's why we won the game um, but it was just an unbelievable game to be a part of and even now it's probably my career highlight because I can still remember what every wicket felt like I can remember how hot it was because it was unbelievable that day. I remember King's Park sat on fire. Really? It was that hot, yeah. Um, and I just remember what it felt like to win that game, regardless of the position it put us in for that Ashes win that year. But just to win a Test match and play a Test match, you, like I said, when you're a kid, you don't imagine that you, you're going to have a career out of cricket. I didn't. I wasn't in a career of cricket at that point. But so I've I've had Mel Jones on the podcast before, and we've spoken about women's cricket, but. What was it like then? Were you getting paid just to play in a tour fee or how were you surviving? Did you have a job on the on the side as well? No, I didn't have a job because I'd just finished uni. Um, I think we, you were getting a tour fee. So I think, I don't know, you got a couple of hundred quid a week maybe and you got your daily allowance, which was covering your food. But other than that, I don't, I don't think we were getting paid really. There was some of the girls were on this chance to shine um, ambassadorial contract where they went into schools two or three times a week, and that was then how they were getting paid. So it wasn't a lot of money; it was you know, probably less than ten grand a year that you were earning. So it wasn't by any means a, a like a viable career option then. Um, but when we came back from that Ashes test, we got this bonus, this bonus win because they'd done back to back Ashes. I was I wasn't in the first Ashes that they'd won at home, but was then in the one in Australia. Um, and it was the first time that you know you had a, a bit of money in your bank account, and mm. I thought, geez, like, mm. maybe they are going to start taking us a bit more seriously now. Um, but yeah, that test, my, my family couldn't get over for it either. So they, I had, ironically, had family friends in Perth, and they came to watch me, and they put this big bed sheet out that they'd put Kate and Hayward Cricket Club on it, and um, brilliant. Yeah, it was just I, again, I think you just don't have an expectation on yourself because yeah. you don't play a lot of test cricket. Um, and I was just, I just thought I'll just do what I've done that's got me here and yeah. see how it goes. And I, I ended up having quite a successful four days, and it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I remember being absolutely knackered at the end of it. I, I think I was asleep because of all the adrenaline and, and my Twitter was going off. I 
you know, I wasn't really on social media back then, but people were picking up on this game and how exciting it was. So my, my Twitter was going crazy at night. So I'm sat there reading it till 2am because I'd never had anything like that before. And I just couldn't sleep through adrenaline. And then we won, I think before lunchtime on the fourth day, and we went down to the Lucky Shag on the yeah. waterfront. And um, David Collier, who was, I think he was... Well, I lived with David Collier in England. Oh. He was the CEO of the Yeah, ECB. so he was CEO at the time. He yeah. turns up with the ECB credit card. So we're all thinking, oh, this is brilliant. Yeah. And I I got woken up, I think it was like an hour later. Anya Shrubs, so I was like poking me she's like crossy you need to go home i'd ordered a pizza and i was sat with this pizza in my mouth and apparently i was i was just asleep it's not from drinking just from exhaustion. i hadn't i'd had like one drink and then i think i went to bed at 5 p.m that night and woke up at 9 a.m the next day wow, just cool just absolutely i just yeah. never experienced anything like that and didn't know how to deal with it yeah um which is you've got to learn that when you're playing professional sport absolutely. as well absolutely and but normal cricket for for women is um all one day stuff isn't it so the test yeah. cricket is so different. Yeah, so we don't play any long format of the game at domestic level in England. I don't think, well, we, they don't do over here either no, in, in Oz, so it's just this so one-off, foreign. throw you in there, see how you go. And that's where, I suppose, your mental and your physical fitness comes into it. Yeah, but there's a lot of, I think you can have a lot of discussion around that because then, you know, we don't play exciting test cricket because we don't know how to, mm. we don't play enough of it. So then we always get criticised that we play almost defensive a defensive format of the game and you don't get results but I just don't understand how you're going to do that when you don't do more of it mm. so they either I think they either need to scrap it completely or they need to let us play more of it because mm. um, it's 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 pretty brutal to just throw you yeah. ladies in there who have never done it before and say here's four days go yeah. and play like you say you, you're going to fall asleep with a pizza in your <laughs> yeah. and just on that note I think you touched on it there any young sort of boys or girls growing up now they don't realize how lucky they are in this environment especially young girls what you guys who are in the team now went through where you had no real security no real income you've blazed the the path for the next generation and these people are gonna who knows someone could listen to this in 20 years and it's going to be completely different landscape to what it was so well done to you on on sort of sticking through it thanks and setting it up for the rest of the the next few generations um moving on to you and your preparation and how you manage yourself what what do you do? You're a fast bowler. What do you do? To, what do you need to do to look after your body to be at optimal sort of peak performance? Um, I've learned. I'm 28 now. Um, I've learned recently that fitness is massive. So you need to get yourself fit. You need to get your skin folds down. Make sure you're eating well. Um, do you think there for the younger viewers, skin folds and and fit or well, skin folds and your, your physique is diet and fitness or mostly diet or combination i think diet's the big one for me because i i've got a massive sweet tooth and i just couldn't understand how you like if i'm running loads why am i not slimming down or why am i not getting more toned but um i i had a pretty poor relationship with food around that when i was really struggling with mental health my kind of punishment was um binge eating so i really i had this horrendous relationship with food so was that at the time when you were doing it you were getting enjoyment out of food but it was also it's subconsciously or deeply a way to punish yourself a bit i think a bit of both i think it was a like severe craving so i i think i liken it to you know if someone has problems and they drink or they gamble or whatever it might be mine was just food that was the way i comforted myself but then it's a horrendous cycle because then you feel gross afterwards and anyway that was (laughs) that's another could talk for an hour about that but yeah. um i've lost my train of thought so how now the, the importance of diet and fitness so yeah i think learning that now i'm probably to say i'm 28 this is probably the fittest and leanest that i've been and it's taken me 10 years of training properly to to work all that out but so if you cut sugar out 
Uh, I'd, no, I've not cut it out completely. I've just got better at managing it. And I think a big thing for certainly females is um, emotional eating. Um, like if we, we used to do it quite a lot as a team. Like if you didn't do well, then you'd eat crap food. If you if you did well, you'd celebrate and you'd treat yourself and you'd eat crap food. So <laughs> it was just yeah, it was it was a bad cycle. Um, but we're not really a culture that we're not a team that drinks a lot. So we we go out for dinner. We do that kind of thing together we don't sit at the bar and have beers together so food's a big part of our life but I think if you can get a good balance with that early and um I think if you've got if you're lucky enough that you've got the professional advice of like S&C coaches or personal trainers whatever it might be then just listen to them and um obviously your core is a, a massive part of your body as a bowler um just making sure that that's you know you're fit and strong and what does your recovery look like after a, a one-day game or a 2020? What do you sort of try and do? Do you do ice baths? Do you foam roll? What do you do personally? Um, we are encouraged to ice bath. I'm not sure I believe in ice baths, but it's one of them. If you don't do it, you'll never know, will you? Um, but I think just just being sensible, that again, if you're going eating a, a Domino's pizza after you've had a game, then you're probably not putting the nutrients back in your body that you need so I better change that (laughs) (laughs) it's easy don't get me wrong it is very easy but um yeah we've had a nutritionist coming in the last two years who's completely like adjusted our all our sense of what what recovery looks like with food and drink and things like that um so that's a big part of it um but sleep I'm a massive sleeper like if I don't get nine hours a night then I'm a I'm a shambles so everyone knows when I've had a like an eight hour sleep because I'm a bit tetchy <laughs> but that's good I think that's good self-awareness for, for young viewers or listeners it's it's important that you identify how much sleep you need there's some of the most successful people in the world in all walks of life have run off four hours sleep yeah. but they, their bodies can do it they can manage it and yeah. some people need eight nine ten hours sleep so it's important and obviously you've worked that out that you need a lot of sleep moving on I know we're a bit conscious of time here we could talk all day but um you had a moment a, a real high where you were um sort of given the, the the ball for the last over in the 2020 in India three runs to defend and you defended it that must have been incredible <laughs> yeah again it's everything's with hindsight I think with sport but I was set up for failure at that point so I just got the ball and said right I'll just give it a go see how it go and I just remember everyone says to me what were you thinking about and I just remember keeping it really simple so I almost felt like I'd kind of been a bit of an intruder in that 2020 series because I didn't need any of my variations I didn't need this like perfect Yorker or bouncer I was just bowling line and length which in 2020 you think yeah, you is think goes the journey but. exactly so um I just me and Heather had spoken and we'd set our field and I just said right I'm going to try and execute this plan if it works it works if not then at least we tried and um, was the plan to bowl length just length just yeah. try and hit like hip bone and try and if we could get a few wickets then brilliant because then pressure might flip um, but even dot balls at that stage were, were great. So I think I'm pretty sure I had three out when we could have had four out, so I was trying to build a bit of pressure. Um, but it was funny because it wasn't probably until the fifth and sixth ball of the over that I realised I could fail because I'd got us so close to winning. Um, but, yeah, it was just... I think it was one of those days. It could have been... It genuinely could have been anyone in the field that bowled that over. But for me, it was a it was quite a big step in my career because... Those overs are normally bowled by Catherine Brunt or Annie Shrubsall, who then normally get the headline. But for a change, it was me because um, Catherine wasn't playing that day. But I think I genuinely think it's all about opportunity because, again, I shouldn't have been in that team because I think Georgia always had her stress fracture in her back, so she had to go home early. So then I was considered for the T20s. Then I was in the squad. I think I was only there as backup initially. I think you're selling yourself short here. I think you're there Genuinely. for a reason. Sometimes things happen and you do have to take your opportunity and 
you saying anyone could have done it is not true because you needed bottle, you needed steel to stand at the top of your mark and execute your plan, not let your sweaty palms or not let the fear of what if I get this wrong. Like, yes, you were set up to fail, but you still did it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But I get. I guess in that sense, it was then an opportunity because Catherine wasn't on the pitch either that day, so she would have bowled that over over had she been on the pitch. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I literally just went de- went back to have a plan, have a field set for that plan, and try and execute. And people will forgive you if you don't execute. But if you don't have a plan, and are basically just guessing or hoping, mm. then that's when you're going to come undone. And I suppose the thing with the, the lesson is you gave yourself permission to fail. You'd just been set up to fail, so there was no real expectation until maybe yep. the fifth or sixth ball. Yeah. Do you remember how it changed in those few last few balls, and did you have to sort of slow down and take a deep breath to stay in the moment? I remember the last ball. Um, I can't remember who came into bat, but she took leg stump, and I was just at the back of my mark. I had the plan. We knew what we were going to do. I was going to do exactly the same ball, try and ball into the top and middle stump and she took leg stump and I said Anya was fielding it at mid off and I I turned to her and I said Anya she's taken leg stump what does that mean where's she going to try and hit me and all all my cricket knowledge just went out of my brain and she's like Grossie just we've got the plan you know what to do do it and it was actually the worst bowl that I, I bowled in that in terms of execution that was the worst one because I think I was a tiny bit cloudier mm. um but thankfully, Tammy fielded a really good, like she made a good stop. Because if that had gone through, then it would they would have drawn the game. So, mm. um, yeah, I think a lesson that I learned from that was just having that clarity and knowing what you want to deliver. And like I said, your teammates will always forgive you if you don't execute mm. a plan. So how does that look? You, you've bowled the ball, you're walking back, and I'm not a fastballer, so I don't really understand that well, but I bowl a bit of spin. So you're walking back. Are you assessing the ball that's just been bowled? and then formulating a plan for the next ball. And then by the time you get to the top of your mark, you're, you're really clear on what you're going to do. Or do you get to the top of your mark and you're like, okay, what am I going to do now? Uh, I'm an assessor as I come back. So I've had to learn, like, it's a bit of a routine of allowing myself maybe four or five seconds on how that ball went. All oh, right, you collapsed a little bit in your action. That's why it was a little bit wider outside of stump, right? That's why that happened. And then you kind of formulate your plan as you come back. And I've found that I'm generally a a better bowler or better at executing my plan when I tell someone what I'm doing. Mm. So having your fast bowlers or if you're a spinner, having your spin bowlers at mid on, mid off, I think is quite important because then you can um, like Is that for reassurance or is that for accountability? Or what? I think a bit of accountability because if I then say, right, I'm going to try and bowl my Yorker now, I've got this field set. You can't set. change your mind. You can't you change mean. your mind. And that is the, the biggest thing I've learned is at the back of your mark, know what you want to bowl. And if you start changing your mind halfway through uh, in terms of your run up, then you're not going to execute. Trouble. Yeah. The only time that I ever would change my mind is if the batter, you know, yes. moves or does something or comes down the track, and you do have to. So if you've got long on and long off out, who are you talking to? Your captain normally. So they'll run over and you'll say, "Yeah." Right. And if you want, if you need that every ball, do you do that every yeah. ball? Yeah, I think you, your captain's got the responsibility of knowing what your what you need as a player. Yeah, a good captains so can do that. They should run from cover mid wicket and say, "What's going on?" You say, "I'm going to bowl a Yorker." Yeah, bang, let's go. Yeah, and then but you, I mean, you've done all this homework before. You know where batters generally hit balls. Um, there's not many girls in the women's game who hit different areas. Uh, it's quite you know, it's traditional. quite traditional all the way through, really. Uh, if people want a six, they're probably going to go over cow. So mm. you, you kind of can set plan A, plan B, plan C, and then you can just kind of go to that plan if you need it. So mm. you're not kind of doing your strategy on the pitch. You mm. just you're just assessing the plan. Yeah. So at the top of your mark, do you take a deep breath? Do you look at the spot you want to bowl? What's your sort of final moments of the routine before you run in? And as you run in, 
are your eyes on the pitch? Are you looking at the batter? Are you just thinking about being free and an athlete? Like, what are you focusing on in that moment? I'm quite, um, I'm a feeler. So I, if you put cones down, I won't be able to hit them. But if you tell me to hit top of off, I'll just be able to hit it because I, I like feel my action and I feel where I fall over and where my head is and where my feet are. Um, and everyone's different. You know, people sometimes need to look at the bowler's toes or whatever it might be. But I know that when I'm bowling my Yorker, I just drop my hand a little bit or whatever it might be. So um, I'm generally just, I've made my decision. As long as I've made my decision and I'm clear on that, then I, I've got a process of how I bowl that ball in my head and what that feels like. Mm. And I keep it as simple as that. I'd love to chat all day, but we'll try and get through the few questions. Um, what at this level in top level women's cricket? What percentage is technical? What percentage is mental of success? Um, I'd say majority is mental. I think the girls who are oh, mental toughness. I don't think you can define, but the girls who you know have got a strong mentality when they play sport, generally the more successful ones. I think Heather Knight is a perfect example of that for us. Um, so when we do the yo-yo, when we do our fitness testing, she probably isn't the fittest girl in the squad. She's definitely up there, don't get me wrong, but she has this just pure determination and grit that she is going to set the example. And she almost just shuts her eyes and runs for half of it because you know, she's just got this inner strength that I guess you want from your captain and your leader. But she just finds finds ways to do what's right for the team. Um, and I think that it is a skill that you have to adapt or develop um but then i do think that if you have the skills and you practice in that in the nets and stuff then that it comes hand in hand mm. so i don't i don't think they're mutually exclusive no absolutely not but i think that the mental Becomes skill of the game more important the higher you go doesn't it yeah definitely and yeah. again you talked earlier about like stadiums and expectations and television everyone's got an opinion i think people who can shut that out as much as possible are generally more successful just as well focus on what they're doing you spoke about understanding the batters and having a plan how much time for you personally goes into video analysis or reviewing your opponents and pre- preparation? Um, well, like I said, as much as I'm like a feeler with myself and my action, I'm a visual learner. So take Harman Preetkor, for example. If I can see where she hits a good ball, so I know she opens her hands and, and hits over cover, then you know what field to set to that. So I think, like I said, there's a lot of girls that are very traditional um, and you have like your plan A, plan B, plan C. But I think there are some anomalies that you have to look into a little bit more and they're generally the match winning players from each team. Um, But I also think that there's an element of keeping it simple for myself. So you go back to what got me here, what am I best at in that situation? How am I most effective for the team? Is that Yorkers? Is that bounce? Whatever it might be. Mm. Um, So I think having a bit of an assurance about yourself as to what you look like at your best Mm. in that situation helps. you can always fall back on. Exactly, Yeah. yeah. What drives you? Um, that's a good question. Um, is it to be your best? Is it to be the best? Is it to prove something to someone? What do you think I gets think, you out of bed and motivates you and drives you? I think when I was a little bit younger, it used to be to be the best and I think prove myself. But now I think from going through like a lot of like mental mental health problems and things like that, I think I have learnt that the only person that I am competing with is myself. And if I can be a better person, a better cricketer, whatever it might be, if I can influence, use my influence in a way that is positive, then that's probably what drives me. And I think I'm very lucky that I have an opportunity doing things like this, having social media followers, that I can potentially influence people. 
Um, and that was a big thing for me when I first spoke out about my mental health because um, I, w- I didn't know whether to do it because once it's out there, then, you, you know, you everyone knows forever, about yeah. it. Yeah, you can't take that back. And the genuinely, the messages that I got back when that first interview went out were just astonishing. I think of the thousand that I got, three of them were negative. And, you know, you had girls saying that that whatever it was, whether it was fate or not, but they read that article that night, they were in a bad place, and it just changed their perspective on things. And, and maybe saved lives. Exactly. So that you then you then wonder why you ever questioned doing it, mm. because how powerful it is just saying that you've been through something. that I don't think, if you've got that platform, I don't think you should ever waste that opportunity, because mm. it, like you said, it could save lives. But it, well done to you for being vulnerable because putting yourself out there to the world, not just to your family or to your psyche, but to the world is, is not easy. And to, to say you're struggling, and, and it is getting easier for, for athletes and people to speak out, but it's still not easy to, to be honest and, and open and say that you're struggling. So well done on that. And, and it, it, I'm sure it has impacted thousands of people's lives. Um, let's quickly touch on... The BBL, you spent some time over here, and the, the, there's a lot happening in cricket over in England. The Super League, yep. and then the hundred coming up. You're with the Manchester Originals. Yep, the um, OGs. Yes. Uh, what, what do you think of the differences in cricket in Australia and and women's cricket in the UK? Um, if I'm completely honest, I think Australia are just ahead of us in terms of you know how many girls are contracted, the standard of the competition that they had. Um, it almost feels like we've kind of reacted to things and realised that we need to push forward. And well, I, don't get me wrong, I think the hundred is going to be brilliant for that I think it's going to be a real stepping stone and I think when you look back at this phase of women's cricket this will be another big year I feel like I say that every year but I think it will be another big year for for English women's domestic cricket um but the I just I just loved playing in the big bash because you're almost like a free soul who goes over you've not got your England coaches there you know whether they were or not but judging everything that you do you're kind of just learning for yourself again and it almost takes you back to that you know the kid that was in the back garden just Mm. finding ways of getting your brother out whatever it might have been um and I think I did some of my best learnings in the recent big bash I was in when I played for um the scorchers in the 18-19 season Mm. Awesome, awesome. Well, best of luck for the 100 and Thank for you. the Super League still going ahead. No, so if it's all scrambled how they're going to do it, but that's our 100s basically taking that right. over now and we'll go back to domestic T20 cricket because otherwise we're not, we've not got any preparation for international cricket. That yeah. was our big argument as players was this 100 is going to be great, but we still need a 2020 format that allows us to, to practice yeah. for international cricket. Well, be prepared when you're taking loads of wickets and doing well. Be prepared for the, this podcast to be put all over social <laughs> yeah. media again. We'll be right behind you, as I'm sure our whole community will be. What's what's common in the best players you've seen? You've played with some amazing players against some amazing players. What's what's a common trait in the best players? Um, they work hard. Um, as simple as that, I think. that you know Some of the best players in the England team are always doing extra. They're always in the nets. They're always learning, how, how can I get better? How can I adapt? Um, if people have worked out my weakness, how do I make my weakness my strength now? Things like that, I think, go a long way. And, and it sounds really simple, doesn't it? But um, I also think the more relaxed you are, the better you play your, your cricket. Again, it goes back to you as a kid, that like you're just running around, you don't really care, You don't. it doesn't matter if you get out in the back garden. But I think it's just having that enjoyment level that... I think it can be almost like bread. I think a team that enjoys themselves is it's very noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we've been at our best as an England team, we've had comments on social media saying, you girls just look like you're having the best time out there. It looks, I want to be a cricketer. Or, I've got a young girl who wants to be a cricketer now. Um, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Who's the hardest opponent you've ever played against? Um, 
I think probably Meg Lanning. I think she's just she's one of the anomalies I spoke about earlier. She's not a traditional player. She you know she hits in areas that then makes you assess how you bowl, and you have to have plans B's, C's, D's, and E's to her. Um, we got the the brunt of that at Chelmsford this year in the Ashes, and mm, she got that she hundred. Got 100. She was just she once just she gets going, that. yeah, once she gets going, she's just she's really hard mm. to stop. Yeah, um, but equally, even someone like Deandra Dotton, I think she's a very well I'd say underrated. She's she's not just not been around the international scene for a while, but you know she's just a game changer. And in terms of how powerfully she hits the ball, she's you know probably the most powerful in the women's game. So she's. You've got that in the back of your mind when you're trying to bowl a York right, you know it's coming back at you pretty yeah. hard. Um, but yeah, I think Meg's probably the toughest. What advice would you give your younger self? Um, I think just don't take it too seriously. Um, it's so hard when you're in a profession, but everyone says to you that this profession doesn't last long, so enjoy it. And you, it, I think it's just really hard to get that balance. But I know that once I've retired or whenever I finish cricket I'll probably look back and go I wish I'd just enjoyed it more you might have to listen to your own advice in the next few weeks yeah when things get tough you yeah. might have to go just enjoy just it just enjoy listen it, to what yeah. I said what's next obviously there's a big tournament coming up what's next yeah so we've got the World Cup starting in a couple of weeks um, and then after that we are back in England and it's the kind of whole restructure of the of the women's domestic stuff over there, we'll have the hundred. We've do you got, have a break, or do you just go? Yeah, we've got. I think we've got three or four weeks off, so I'm going to try and stay out here as long as I can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we're back in in April sometime, so no doubt it'll be raining. The first game will get cancelled anyway. So. Yeah. Now, before I ask the final two questions, I ask everyone: How can our audience follow you? You're, you're active on Instagram, Twitter. What are your handles? Shout them out for That's us. That's a <laughs> good question. I think my I'm pretty sure my Twitter handle is at katecross16, and my Instagram handle is. Crossy 16. All right, well, we'll share them out and I'm going to tag you in a photo in a minute. But last two questions we ask everyone why do you play cricket? Um, I think why I play cricket has changed. Um, I've said it numerous times, but I think I was just a kid who loved the sport. But now, with a bit more of a mature head on, I just see the opportunity that it gives me. Um, the experiences that I've had have only come through cricket, the places that I've visited have only come through cricket. Um, and I just count myself really lucky that I get to play a sport that I really enjoy and get all that as well. You know, don't get me wrong, there's some crap days that come with it, but it it definitely outweighs itself mm. in terms of, I guess, just the lifestyle that you can lead as a, a, prof- a professional cricketer, and I definitely wouldn't change it. Yeah, yeah I bet. Um, now, what's your definition of success? Um, I think personally... It's happiness. I think if you're happy, if you're healthy, then you're in a pretty good place. I, I, I genuinely believe that everything kind of works itself out, you know, whether that's fate or not. But I think things happen for a reason. Um, and I think if you are happy and doing what you love, then you've won. Amazing, amazing. Well, guys, what an amazing conversation. What a great insight to a beautiful person and a great cricketer. Um, we could chat all day, but Rossi, thank you for no joining problem. me. Um, And I'm sure our audience, boys and girls, have got a lot of value out of that. So thank you. No problem. Well, guys, wasn't that powerful? As I said at the start, Kate was so open and honest with everything. What about when she was describing sitting in the stands at a sold-out Lords while England were playing in the final and not wanting them to win? What an emotional roller coaster that day must have been. And how, even though she'd made her international debut, she was still really nervous when she made her debut for the men's first 11 at her childhood club. 
What about how it must have been as a teenager with the scrutiny and backlash when she was the first ever female selected in the Lancashire Academy? It was great to hear how she bounced back and found the love of the game again after the call from Lisa Kitely saying she'd been dropped from the England Academy. Guys, this was an awesome conversation with Kate, and it's a reminder that mental health is such an important conversation in today's society as more and more people suffer from anxiety, depression, and other forms of mental health issues. And it's people like Kate Cross, who are high achievers and incredibly successful in their fields, sharing their stories of the battles they've been through that break down the stigma around mental health. As Crossy said, it's okay to have a sad day or feel a bit flat, but the most important thing to do is reach out and talk to someone. Whether that's a friend or loved one or a professional, always remember that it ain't weak to speak. If you found this episode valuable, I'd love it if you could share it with one or more people who you think could also benefit from hearing it. And also, please send Crossy a message at Crossy16 on Instagram to let her know that you enjoyed it. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could please take 60 to 90 seconds to leave a review as it helps us move up the rankings and get heard by more people. On that note, thanks a lot for listening, legends. Now it's time to go out and get it done.